Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the third Youth Forum of the school year. I'm Rimi Orisania, a member of the Youth Forum Council, and we are so glad that you have decided to join us for today's important conversation, a conversation on the future of Ohio's drug policy. Today's discussion is relevant to many of us from communities in Northeast Ohio to communities across the nation, and many of us know someone who has been affected by the opioid crisis. In 2016, unintentional drug overdoses caused the deaths of 4,000 Ohio residents. There were more than 63,000 drug overdose deaths nationwide, which is three times the number of drug overdose deaths that occurred in 1999. Overdoses are the leading cause of death for Americans under 50. They now claim more lives than car crashes, gun deaths, and the AIDS virus did at their peak. Over 13 people die a day in Ohio due to drug overdoses, a new high as the state battles the opioid epidemic. In the 2018 general election, there was only one statewide contention on the ballot. Issue one, to reduce penalties for crimes of obtaining, possessing, and using illegal drugs. Simply put, Issue one was a constitutional amendment that if adopted would reduce the number of people in state prisons for low level nonviolent crimes. The initiative would have made the possession, obtainment and use of illegal drugs no more than a misdemeanor. The impacts issue one would have on the opioid epidemic are mixed. However, as the opioid epidemic remains a key issue in Ohio and around the country, communities are searching for solutions. Drug policies vary greatly around the world and even from state to state. Although the amendment did not pass, its presence on the ballot indicates that people feel something should be done. However, they cannot agree upon what that is. What is the right balance? How does Ohio's current drug policy affect how addicts are sentenced or punished? How are drug traffickers penalized or prosecuted? What works? Since issue one failed to pass, what should Ohio do next in regards to its drug policy? Our panelists are here today to shed light on some of these questions. Allow me to introduce them. First, we have Bashara Addison, Senior Manager of Policy and Strategic Initi Initiatives at Towards Employment. She worked on the issue one campaign and has years of experience in community engagement and policy. Our next panelist is Brianna Russ, a behavioral health liaison at Signature Health, which works with adults, adolescents, children, and families, offering much needed help in supportive, respectful, in a supportive and respectful environment. Her area of expertise lies in treating individuals in the criminal justice system. Finally, we have Dr. David Stream, a psychiatrist in Cleveland, Ohio, who is affiliated with multiple hospitals in the area, including the Cleveland Clinic. He has been in practice for more than 20 years. 
Here to guide our discussion is senior at Andrew Osborne High School and Youth Forum Council President, Natalie Grace Sapula. Natalie, I turn the forum over to you. All right, I would just like to begin by asking, how would you characterize the state of drug policy in Ohio? Bashara, would you like to start? Uh, sure, um, so thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it. Um, as someone who worked on the Issue One campaign, one element of Issue One, and I recognize how complex Issue One actually, actually was, um, would have decriminalized those with felony four and five drug possession offenses only um, as misdemeanors and also would be retroactive, meaning that it would um, apply to those, those who are currently in the community um, who have drug possession offenses. Um, they would be able to petition the court that they were convicted in to have it reclassified as a misdemeanor. And this would have had a significant impact on, for those individuals in particular, um, their ability to access employment and housing because there's a number of what we call collateral sanctions in Ohio law. So that means if you've been, uh, if you have X criminal record, you are precluded from X benefit job or access to some sort of societal, societal offering. And um, so the current state is that even though issue one failed, those individuals who have drug possession as their most serious offense living in the community still face collateral consequences. And there are individuals who are incarcerated with felony four or five drug possession offenses as their most serious offense, incarcerated in state prison now. And so as a community, we have to ask ourselves, is prison the right intervention for individuals who are battling addiction? And not just opiate addiction, even though that is the, the crisis that's facing us right now, um, but there are individuals who are battling addiction and is, is prison the right intervention? Is that how we wanna use our public dollars? Right now we have a $1.8 billion um, prison budget and we spend maybe, at least in Cleveland, eight to $12,000 a year per pupil, but $27,000 a year to incarcerate someone. And so we have some choices that we need to make on whether that we should continue to incarcerate those who have drug possession as their most serious offense. We also know that we have specialized dockets in Ohio, uh, drug courts in particular, which often uh, offer diversion programs. And those who um, successfully complete those programs definitely benefit from uh, participating. And I think one of the critiques of issue one was a fear that drug courts would uh, be undermined if issue one passed. In other communities where they've made similar reforms that actually has not come to pass, uh, we've actually seen a rise in the use of drug courts in other communities, but that was a concern that was raised uh, during the Issue One campaign. But there's also racial disparities in who has access to these specialized dockets. So we know that um, I think it's 80% of those who are participating in drug courts are white. And we know that African Americans are sent to prison for drug offenses at 10 times the rate as white Americans. Um, at least that, and that's a national number, but it's also true in the state of Ohio. Um, and so why is it that certain individuals have access to these specialized dockets and others do not? Um, I think that we have our other panelists have better answers on what treatment programs available can actually help someone overcome these issues and that should influence future policy. Um, but those are the, the disparities and the issues that we have to grapple with. Um, I do believe post issue one, 
that uh, Senator Abhoff is interested in taking up legislation, um, either at, by the end of this year or in the beginning of the new year, on how do we actually begin to look at drug policy in the state of Ohio, kind of taking some, uh, using that part of issue one, since there were four distinct parts of issue one, but that part of issue one as inspiration and using recommendations from um, uh, committees within the State House as well as uh, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative. I'm pretty sure they have some recommendations uh, to be able to come up with a policy that we can agree on um, in the, in the, since issue one did not pass. Would anyone else like to add? Well, I, I think uh, the point that Bashar, one of the points that Bashar brought up that's really important is that the state of addiction, you know, the addiction epidemic, the particularly the opiate epidemic in uh, Ohio is one of disparity, that there are uh, tremendous disparities in the opportunities that individuals in Ohio have to get proper evidence-based best practice treatment. Um, courts can play an important role in di directing and diverting people into that treatment rather than into you know, incarceration, which uh, often does not lead to the kind of results that we as a society wanna have and leads those folks to have lifelong consequences and barriers put in front of them to achieve the goals that maybe they've come to the realization you know, or have always had the realization that the, you know, these are goals that they wanna achieve. So we don't want to, um, we don't, we, I think what all of us are interested in is how do we um, give people the opportunity to get the benefit of treatment and how can the courts be, play a role in that that is positive and encouraging um, while, you know, still I, uh, the courts have a role in public safety, but what's the value in this particular population, especially when you're talking about people where the, the only, the most serious charges you mentioned are felony four or five uh, drug possession charges, which can have extremely profound uh, impacts, negative impacts on people's lives when from the standpoint of, of Brianna and I as, as treatment providers, a lot of times we look at these folks five years, 10 years down the road and they're doing great from the standpoint of their addiction recovery, and yet there are so many things that they still can't do um, because there's an F5 on their record from 10 years ago. So I, I, one thing I you know, hope and wish is that this conversation that we're having today and that we've been having in the state for um, you know, a year or two plus now uh, leads to a reduction in those disparities that you see um, not just, uh, well, I think absolutely, you know, racial disparities and also community disparities, county disparities from big counties like Cuyahoga County where there are, you know, two recovery court dockets to smaller, more rural, more isolated counties where, you know, the resources to have a program like that right now seem uh, perhaps more difficult to find. Would you like to continue? Um, yeah, I, just to piggyback off of that, um, as a treatment provider, it was very difficult for me to, to decide what would be most appropriate. Um, and with my experience, I have found that um, the judges, the courts having some input 
on what treatment options is very beneficial. A lot of times they're, they're not ready, they're afraid, and just having that extra, that person to say, hey, let's try out treatment um, is very beneficial. And with the um, issue one, that would take away the judge's powers to do so. Um, and it'd be very hard to modify once it is in the Constitution. Is there a balance that can be found um, between accommodating the needs of the community and the needs of the individual and making these uh, policies and making these changes? I believe that there um, could can be a balance. I think what we learned, um, at least when I was on the campaign trail, um, most individuals seemed interested in the, uh, the policy ideas of issue one, but depending on which community I was in, there were different issues that were raised. So I found that in kind of our inner ring suburbs, issue one being a constitutional amendment was, was an issue. In some of the more rural counties, uh, fentanyl was a bigger issue. Um, and then in particularly in African-American communities, they, they expressed that the messaging around issue one felt like it wasn't for them, um, which of course, um, the crafters of issue one, many of them are people that had criminal backgrounds and also um, are, are people of color. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't change the fact that we had some messaging that was not necessarily geared towards African-Americans, or at least it was perceived that way. And so I think um, making sure that we raise the consciousness around the state of our criminal justice system is really important. And I think many of the folks that I had a chance to engage with were, were surprised by some of the data that I was able to share about what's happening in our system. And so from a local level, we know we have uh, jail overcrowding, and you know the answer to that is, is bail reform, mm -hmm. and there's been uh, legislation introduced in the state house around bail reform, and you'll, if you talk to anyone who's working in a local jail, many of the individuals struggling are those who have, are battling addiction. They're being picked up for low-level drug offenses. And so how do we, we how do we go about addressing that? And I believe that there's some interventions, particularly pre-trial services, and there's some counties across the state of Ohio that um, on their own have been implementing pre-trial services and making sure that people have access to, to services before they're going into the criminal justice system. That's a particular intervention. Um, making sure that um, when we are resourcing our communities to provide quality treatment programs, and I think there's some probably federal policy that has to be adjusted, particularly around Medicaid and billing for, um, and that this was something that I learned on the campaign trail that for certain types of healthcare services and billing, um, you could only have like 16 beds that are offering a particular service if you're, if you're billing Medicaid. And so that's a, uh, whether we need like a state waiver, like there's some changes that need to be made. And I think collectively, if we know what the barriers are and we have some broader discussions about that going forward, we're gonna be able to come to some consensus on what needs to be done. And I think the power of issue one was that it did raise awareness about some of the challenges. And so now we have to continue to have that conversation. So even though in the absence of it passing, um, we still um, are doing this work together. And I think people are interested. People want to take this up as an issue across party lines. I feel that there should be a, a sentencing reform um, done by the legislature or voter approval 
um, in Lake County, I feel that they are doing a, a pretty good job trying to make that balance. We have a lot of great programs to help people before they get to the courts or any type of um, criminal charges. And I, I feel like they're just, they're, they're trying. Well, I, I think one thing I'd, I'd like all of you to think about is have you ever considered making a big change, maybe a change for the better, healthier change in your life? Um, going to the gym, joining a sports team, um, you know, uh, going to the library every day, who knows what. But um, I think we've all been in the position where we've considered making some change, and there is you know, part of us that, you know, doesn't necessarily always want to make those changes, even though we know it's good for us. So the term for that, the word for that, right, is ambivalence. We're, we're not sure one way or the other. There's part of us that, you know, maybe wants to um, uh, keep going, you know, with what we're doing, and there's part of us that thinks maybe I could be doing better. Um, and ambivalence is a part of all behavioral health change decisions or general health behavior decisions. Uh, and it's a part of, often a part of people's uh, approach to, to their own addiction problems too. So ambivalence is something that people with addiction problems, even faced with potential incarceration and all kinds of other problems, they're still often ambivalent. And so what I think all of us are trying to think about is, how do we help um, the community as a whole? Because even though we are individuals, but we're part of a community too, and each and every one of us has an equal stake in that. Um, how do we use those uh, community powers and resources responsibly to help people and support them in making you know, behavioral health changes or changes in their health and making decisions to get into addiction treatment or to treat their underlying trauma or other psychiatric problems um, or whatever it is. You know, part of my goal as a physician is always to help people to be as healthy as they can be. And so these are decisions that you see all across the spectrum of healthcare and these are things that we all struggle with uh, over the course of our lives. Um, but. I, I think society can help send that message without being, uh, without establishing, you know, more authority over our right to make our own decisions than, you know, than we as a country have decided our government's going to have, you know, a certain amount of power. Uh, so we want to be able to be supportive of that community, and that means being supportive of our individuals as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, we discussed a bit about how Issue 1 attempts to combat mass incarceration to some extent, and what does this implicate for the nation on a wider scale, beyond Ohio, even? Dr. Stream, would you like to take this one? Well, I, one thing, you know, to talk about the, the larger country is, is really interesting because the DEA is, you know, the acting director, the administrator of the DEA is, um, you know, reported on several occasions that almost all the cocaine that they seize nationally right now is spiked with fentanyl. And so that's potential, that's capable of, uh, first of all, of course, getting people addicted when they don't even really know what they're, they, they definitely don't know what they're ingesting. 
And second of all, uh, it raises the risk of overdose uh, in people who really didn't think they were taking, uh, you know, they really didn't know what they were putting in their bodies. Um, historically, every heroin epidemic, which that's what we're in the midst of, has always ended with a stimulant epidemic, which is usually cocaine. Uh, this time around, we have the most dangerous opiate we've ever confronted, which is fentanyl and carfentanyl. Um, and, the, uh, and now we realize that the cocaine and the other stimulant supply has been uh, intentionally um, spiked, laced, what, use whatever word you want, with fentanyl. So how that's going to play out and what we're going to be talking about as an epidemic five years, ten years from now, I don't think any of us can sit here and say what that's going to look like. Um, it's important for us to monitor what's going on nationally. Um, historically, that's had a major impact on what we see in Cleveland, but it's not always the same thing. Uh, there's places out west that have dealt with terrible, terrible uh, crystal meth epidemics that in Ohio we haven't seen nearly as much. So whether this is the leading edge of a new meth epidemic that we'll start seeing, uh, I don't know, but my experience tells me that things are going to look very different 20 years from now, 10 years from now, 5 years from now than they look now, and, and collaborating with what the national organizations are seeing is a very important tool in helping us to get ahead of what the next threat might be. Um, I would say that mass incarceration nationally is a broad issue and how we treat individuals with nonviolent offenses and then even um, more narrow uh, drug possession offenses are just possible interventions to address the overall issue of mass incarceration. So um, I don't know if any of you in here have read uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow or seen The 13th on, on Netflix, um, but I highly recommend those because she outlines um, really how we arrived at the state of mass incarceration that we have today. And part of it is our drug policy. So if we want to be able to address those issues, we do have to look at our drug policy. But there's also some underlying issues that are fueling um, those things as well. Um, and I would say that really looking at the racial disparities in our system is probably a, one of the places that we want to start. Um, and I actually see Michael Shields in, in the back. And Policy Matters Ohio has done some really interesting research um, in uh, for looking specifically at Ohio and collateral sanctions, which is really on the far side of mass incarceration. So when someone's released, if someone's not gaining access to employment, they're more likely to reoffend. That's a public safety issue, but it's also fueling our numbers of mass incarceration because those are individuals that have, for some reason or another, are coming back into the system and are building on our numbers, and which is why we have such a high prison population. And so I would check out that Policy Matters Ohio report. So if we want to look at how we address mass incarceration, drug policy is a piece of a really big puzzle. And so we can't look at just that. There's a number of other policies that are actively disenfranchising our communities, which create conditions for, for criminal behavior that that leads to a conviction, um, and that fuels our mass incarceration rates. But we do know that oh, this, 
the United States incarcerates more people or incarcerates people at a disproportionate rate than other countries. And so looking at what other countries are doing and looking at what other states in the U.S. are doing to drive down their prison population is probably a place to start. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, and a lot of it's local. So what is, what is the role of an individual judge, whether they're making a decision to send someone to a diversion program or making a decision to put them on probation, put it, creating conditions for them more likely to be a re, to reoffend? What are the state policies that are allowing conditions for, for people to be going into the system? And then at the federal level too. And so I think there's a whole, whole suite of things that have to be looked at if we wanna really drive down our mass incarceration policy. But looking at the history and how we have a disproportionate share of people of color incarcerated um, and really looking at um, particularly the new Jim Crow, uh, which by Michelle Alexander, is a really good place to start if we want to better unpack and understand um, why our system is the way that it is. Um, so I can't speak to the future, but I do hope that um, other states will do what Lake County does and has more quick response teams or more opiate recovery transition programs or programs um, that help other addictions. Um, I also hope there's more judges will look at addiction like Lake County does and sentence to treatment. They do a lot of that. And um, so I just, I just hope that people are just more versed in addiction and how hard it is and just offer more treatment. Do you see the nation unifying itself on its drug policy and uh, treatment plans in any way in the future? Brianna, would you like to start? <laughs> I would say that there is a wave um, of interest in like legalizing marijuana. Um, and we already know that um, a number of uh, states are already do using medical marijuana. And I think because of, of the, the capitalism associated with that, um, you're, it's forcing states to have to have conversations around drug laws. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's some uh, financial reasons why states are having to have these conversations. So I wouldn't say it's unifying in a good way. And I think we can debate on whether that's a, probably a city club forum for another day mm -hmm. on whether we should legalize marijuana. I'm sure there's already been one. Um, but I think because that is a national conversation because other states are doing it and other countries have done it, um, that is probably going to help to fuel the conversation. If, if as advocates we're smart, uh, we should take advantage of the, those conversations to say, if we're going to do this, then it should impact how people are um, experiencing the criminal justice system for using drugs like marijuana. Um, and how retroactive it is. So you can't legalize something and then have a number of individuals incarcerated for that particular use. And so um, addressing those tensions, um, I would imagine would be a unifying conversation. Uh, you know, we, we have a wide uh, variety of opinions about a lot of different issues all over the country, you know, things like all sorts of, you know, um, uh, controversial issues, capital punishment. I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that you can go to different parts of the country and find very disparate opinions. 
Um, and in certain parts of the country, you'll see um, different levels of support for, you know, another good example would be probably capital punishment. Um, so, you know, is there a disparity or a wide variety of uh, approaches in, in this issue? Yes. And I think it's very likely that that will continue. I, I share Bashar's hope that maybe one day we can come together and have a, a centralized, um, unified approach. I think our track record, you know, as a nation of that sort of thing is not great. Um, but I always have hope for the future. And, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why we're all glad to be talking to you today. Would you like to add one last comment? No, no that's good. All right. Uh, thank you, everyone. And I would like to turn the floor over to our City Club member, Andrew. Hi, I'm Andrew Kaplan, a junior at Hawkins School and member of the Youth Forum Council. Today, we are enjoying a youth forum panel discussing Ohio's drug policy, featuring Bashara Addison, Senior Manager of Policy and Strategic Initiatives at Towards Employment, Brianna Russ, Behavioral Health Liaison at Signature Health, and David Stream, MD, of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at Cleveland Clinic. Our moderator is Youth Forum Council President, Natalie Grace Sipula. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you would like to tweet your question, please tweet it at the City Club Youth, and we'll ask if time, if time allows. We ask that your questions be brief to the point in actual questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and our microphone holders will come to you. Holding microphones today are Youth Council members Maria Contratova and Lauren Shepard. May we have the first question, please? Um, so why do you think issue one failed to resonate with Ohio voters? I think one of the things I mentioned before um, is I think it was a very complex initiative to explain in a five-minute soundbite. Um, I think people were hung up on it being a constitutional amendment. Um, there were some folks who believed that it wasn't drafted for them even though I, I, I disagree with that, but um, that, that takes some self-reflection upon the campaign on how do we make sure that we have messaging that resonates for different groups of people. Um, and I think the, the fentanyl issue and what I believe is some misinformation about uh, the issue one's impact on fentanyl uh, created some problems. However, 1.5 million people did vote for issue one and you know, over 700,000 signatures were collected for it to be on the ballot. So it's not because people don't care about criminal justice reform. And so I think in, we often, when we look at past ballot initiatives, many of them do not pass the first time around. Um, and they often pass the next time, which means as advocates, we have a lot of work to do because the issues that issue one sought to address still exist, prison overcrowding, not enough resources for, for treatment programs, um, having individuals with nonviolent offenses serving time with individuals who do have violent offenses, um, the fact that we're, we spend so much money on our criminal justice system and there's other community priorities that deserve 
that deserve attention and resources as well, and we have limited resources, so we have to make some um, really good decisions on how we use those dollars, and the fact that there's also disparities in our criminal justice system in terms of who ends up in our system and who gets, who gets diverted in other ways, those problems still exist. And I think people are interested in addressing them, but I think we have different viewpoints on the best way to intervene. I would challenge us to, for ourselves, is do we accept the status quo? And issue one raises consciousness, so it raised awareness about these problems, um, even though it wasn't effective necessarily in getting passed. Um, as a community, do we accept the problems as they are? And if the answer is no, we have to collectively begin to understand what's being done in other places to not reinvent the wheel. What about, what elements of issue one actually should work, which I mean, I'm still, I still believe that many of the elements of issue one would have been effective at addressing some of these issues, but what tweaking needs to happen? Um, maybe it doesn't need to be a constitutional amendment the next time around. The reason why advocates were interested in it being a constitutional amendment is there was a fear that it would get undermined if it wasn't something that was set in stone. But then the challenge is we never know, we can't uh, you know, predict the future and know whether or not, like what is the next big drug issue right now? We couldn't have predicted fentanyl would be laced into drugs in our community, which you know, drug, we already had a drug problem. And so we couldn't have predicted that, so we don't know what to predict down the road. But how do we have a nimble enough policy that can um, be flexible and offer judicial discretion to address some of those, some of the things that we don't, we can't predict for the future, but also maintain the fact that we have to drive down our prison population. We have to make sure that we have resources dedicated for treatment programs, and we just don't have enough. And so um, I think there were a couple things and why it failed. I think it still could have done, if it had passed, it would have done more good than harm. Um, and I think that we have to look at what, what could have worked and what are some other mechanisms or vehicles to make sure that the pieces of it get in, end up being implemented into policy because we do need those reforms. Hopefully that answers your question. Hello, I would like to ask a question about a non-opioid drug. It is my understanding that the GBH slash date rape drug was included in the F4, F5 uh, penalty revocations. So you could keep up to nine doses of GBH in your possession without su suffering a felony penalty. Is that true? You're asking about the, the issue one yeah. rule? You want to answer that? So, I actually don't know. Um, that is the first time I've, anyone's ever asked me that, and I heard a lot of questions on the campaign trail from a lot of different communities, and no one ever raised that one. Um, so it's something I would have to get back to you on. Um, an F4, F5 classification um, is not just based on the type of drug you have and the amount, but your intent and what you plan to do with it. So I, without, looking specifically at um, for that particular drug, I, I don't actually know, but I would imagine that as someone who is prosecuting a that type of situation, um, that an individual would get companion charges that would fall outside of the scope of issue one. That's what I would imagine. 
Uh, but again, I need to uh, look at the language a little bit more closely for that because I no one's ever asked me that. So I actually uh, don't have a great response. So I can get back to you though, because I can find it really quickly. I mean, I, mean, I think, let me just make one point that we've touched on a little bit. Does everybody know what the implications of a fourth or fifth degree felony can be? So if you're an adult and you know, if you're old enough, most of you probably are to be charged as an adult with a fourth or fifth degree felony, there are a tremendous number of things right now as the law is right now, even if you don't spend a day in jail, there, it will have a huge impact on your life. And there are a lot of things that many people aspire to and would like to do in their lives that as the law is right now and as many employer practices are right now, you would be prevented from doing with something that, that I think many people would consider, and usually it's characterized as a low-level um, uh, drug or other charges. There are a lot of charges that have nothing to do with uh, drugs or alcohol that are classified in that F4, felony 4, felony 5 uh, level. So, um, you know, these are really important things to understand because, you know, young people sometimes um, can find themselves in situations that can have reverberating, very negative consequences for a lot of their lives or even all their lives. And while we're, you know, trying to change that, and I think we're all on the same page about that, um, it's really important for folks to not learn these terms when they're in the middle of something that's, you know, directly affecting them. So we all want you to understand that we want you to have every opportunity in your lives that you want to take advantage of. And, um, you know, when those terms and those charges get thrown out, uh, you know, it, it has very major impacts on people's lives for decades, you know, afterwards. And that has nothing to do with how much time they spend in jail. And I think you know all of us would would argue that, arguably, that's the the biggest consequence, uh, regardless of how much whether somebody's put in jail or not. The biggest consequence are the consequences that those people suffer because of the fact that they're now labeled as having a felony conviction. And the, the legal part of that is collateral sanction. That's what I yeah, referenced yeah. earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, Policy Matters Ohio, the report that I referenced, found that they looked at 524 state laws that actually bar individuals with felony convictions um, from different types of, well, bars individuals' criminal records from different types of employment opportunities, where 56% of those specifically targeted those with felony convictions. Mm -hmm. And we know that on average, in any given year, about 10% of those who are, you know, incarcerated are incarcerated for um, drug-related offenses on any given year. And so it, it definitely impacts your life beyond, so one, there's the state laws that might bar you from a particular job, occupation, a license, uh, being able to apply to college. There's on a lot number of college applications, there's a box that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor? That exists on many um, job applications with private employers, not so much at 
uh, with, with public employers because there's many cities and the state of Ohio has really kind of taken on this effort to what they call move the box. So taking the box off job applications, but they're still doing a background check, but that's not the first thing they see or learn about you. But with many in private employers, that still exists. And so having a criminal record, even if you've completed your sentence, often still follows you. And so beyond having to address, overcome the barrier or the challenge of battling addiction, you're still also dealing with these other things that are, that are getting in the way of you having a full and successful life. And that has not just an impact on you. If you're not able to get a job, you're not a taxpayer. You're not paying, you may not be able to get a home. You may not be paying property taxes. Maybe you're a father and you want to reconnect with your children, but you haven't uh, paid child support because you can't afford to. Or you're a mom who wants to be on the receiving end of that child support, but the, the father in the picture isn't able to, or vice versa, because it's not always just a, a man in the picture that would be paying child support. So um, it affects more than just the individual. And, and then when, as it relates to specifically being able to pay child support, the individual who loses is the child. They're the ones that um, lose the most from the way we have set up our system to cr that uh, prevents individuals with criminal records from being fully participating in society. I was a forensic case manager for three years and I single-handedly walked um, with these individuals looking for jobs, looking for housing, and it was very, very difficult. Um, it wasn't impossible, but the places that they had to live were not great places. Um, I had a, a client who applied at Taco Bell and he had a um, felony five. They wouldn't hire him. He was a, a great kid. Um, it, it, so it's very, very difficult. Uh, do you think there's a viability for Portugal style decriminalization in Ohio or across the nation? Do you think there's viability for decriminalization like they have in Portugal and a couple other nations in Ohio or across the nation? Well, I, I think politically, probably the best answer is, is no. Um, you know, I, I don't think that that's something that's going to happen in the foreseeable future. You know, I always have hope for change and positive things, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see that as... Um, being something, the, the other thing to remember about Portugal, is, of course, is Portugal's a small country. Uh, the United States is a big country, and one of the advantages of that is that we can, and we were talking about this earlier about the state versus the national approach, is you have had the opportunity to have laboratories. So when you think about um, changes in marijuana laws. You know, we've had different states that have experimented with that. When we talk about changes in um, availability of medication-assisted treatment for addiction, uh, there's a bunch of great models that have been developed and, and published and written about in Massachusetts and other places. So it allows us to try out different things without committing the entire country to a particular course of action to see how it works, um, you know, and, and then potentially to build on that if it seems to work or to abandon it if it doesn't. Um, so I think that's the advantage of the big country approach rather than uh, a much smaller uh, 
nation like uh, Portugal. Uh, good afternoon. I appreciate you being here today. Um, there's been a lot of conversation using the term mass incarceration. And in such a large room with so many students, I think I can comfortably assume that some are probably being affected by mass incarceration. So could you please explain the connection between mass incarceration and racial, institu uh, racial institutionalized racism, especially for the young people who are, ha have resentment against fathers who may be missing uh, because they have been a victim of mass incarceration? So um, I, I can try and take that. Um, so as it relates to race and mass incarceration, we know that um, African Americans in particular, um, and there's other um, obviously racial, uh, racial groups that also represent the Ohio prison population, but I'll specifically speak to those that are African American. Um, we represent 12% of Ohio's population according to like 2010 census data. Getting ready to go through another census so that data might change. Uh, probably will be close, but um, a little bit different. And, but we're over 40% of Ohio's prison population. And so the question is, how did we arrive at those statistics? We have a disproportionate share of our population incarcerated. And that's part of mass incarcerations that are and when we look at mass incarcerations that are the rates of um, the crime rates and when we think about uh, use of drugs hasn't specifically crime rates haven't necessarily gone up over the years like I think that they've kind of tapered off but our prison population has con continued to rise which has a lot to do with our sentencing policy um, arrest rates and who is being arrested and how they are being charged um, and those are the things that um, have racial implications because we're finding that um, there's a national study that individuals who are, are white, individuals who are black, it was specifically looking at those two groups, so not other ethnic groups, even though we know that there's, there's other racial disparities in our system. Um, those two groups in particular use illicit drugs at the same rate, but African-Americans nationally are charged at six times the rate. Why is that? I went to a suburban school district. I'm pretty sure a number of my peers in high school were using illicit drugs. I'm pretty sure they were using illicit drugs while I was at a very nice private university. And they don't have criminal convictions. But individuals in certain communities, particularly communities of color, are being arrested and charged, sentenced and sent to prison using the same type of substance. Now, it doesn't mean that we should just overcharge and, and come into these suburban communities and um, arrest everyone who's using an illicit substance. I'm not proposing or suggesting that in any way, shape, or form. And I also believe that diversion programs work better. So I, I, I would, I'm a huge proponent, which is one of the reasons why I got behind issue one, of, of not using prison as an option. Um, but what is happening is that there is a proliferation of individuals of color and disproportionate share incarcerated. And we've had policies and practices and practices supported by policy, government sanctioned policies and practices that are leading to the rise in population for people of color. Now, does that mean we don't take responsibility for our own actions? 
Absolutely not. We have to take responsibility. But what are the underlying conditions that are uh, allowing for someone or incentivizing someone to engage in those activities which could lead to them being overcharged, sentenced, and those things? And there's a number of policies that actually I would really promote. There's a small exhibit at Mount Pleasant Now Development Co um, Corporation called Undesign the Red Line. And if you overlay crime rates, um, uh, property value from policies that were made you know, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the issues that we, the policies that we had back then are still affecting the same communities now. And those also happen to be the communities where we're sending more and more individuals to prison which also has other implications just in terms of being able to pay property taxes and, and we know that our school systems are often funded through property taxes so that's less fewer dollars that are going in to serve other important needs like serving our, our future, uh, protecting our future. Um, it impacts voting so individuals incarcerated can't, aren't voting and so those are, that's political power that's being, that's being taken away from those neighborhoods um, and those parents are absent. Right, And so all of those things are contributing to why we have problems in our communities. Um, again, we still have to take personal responsibility for our own actions, um, but there's a lot of factors that are leading to individuals ending up in prison and other individuals who might have some of the same behaviors but aren't seeing those effects. Hopefully that kind of gets at it. Um, my question was as much as the problem it like as big as the problem is don't y'all think it should have passed like more people would have said yes to pass it well I, I I agree with Bashar I think that uh, there some of the reasons why people were uncomfortable with the way issue one was written um, I, I think that led a lot of people to um, either vote against it or at least not be passionate about it uh, and I think the other point that Bashar made that was uh, very important is um, that I do think, I, I think I agree with both of you that um, a lot of people do recognize this as a very serious problem and, um, and the public, at least the voting public, didn't feel that the way issue one was written was the right solution, but it doesn't mean that People don't care about finding a solution that we can all sort of agree on, um, and I, I, you know, it's my hope that that can still happen. Um, you know, I was, I had the um, opportunity to be at Recovery Court with Judge Sinnenberg uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, it was just a tremendously positive experience. The, the. Uh, staff in the court were extremely encouraging the folks and of course the folks in the the docket the defendants who came uh, none of them were in jail uh, they all had either finished treatment or were finishing treatment and they had a bunch of other things that they had to do as part of their treatment not as part of punishment and uh, one of the thoughts that I've had is how do we use the law and public policy to get more folks who might benefit from an environment like that that takes advantage of 
some of that ambivalence and directs it into a positive direction. Say, okay, here's some things that are really bad that we don't want to have to expose you to, so here are all the things that uh, we can do for you and encourage you to get involved with that can be helpful and get your, your life and your choices back on the right track. And that's, that's a, just a really, really, um, uh, I, I think something that the availability of that, increasing the availability, reducing the disparity uh, in what defendants, what individuals have the opportunity to get involved in programs like that uh, is, uh, is something that hopefully the issue one debate will, will lead to a further discussion about how do we do that. Issue one had passed. I think part of one of the other reasons that I didn't discuss why it didn't is I think there was a significant amount of misinformation uh, put out there about issue one. And those that were opposed to it were really effective at getting that information out. Um, and it, it saddens me because many of these individuals are in positions of public trust and actually circulating information that wasn't true. So some of the information, um, you know, that it was backed by these, you know, liberal California folks. And it's like the, the, the crafters of issue one, one, did their homework. They've been working on this for over three years. It was built on evidence-based practices. And all of each of the reforms, particularly the three that dealt with uh, specific populations of people that would be affected by issue one, are all reforms that have been done in other communities. And we have not, and the sky didn't fall. And so those, the folks that worked on issue one were Ohio-based, uh, were individuals that were invested in the community, were affected persons, individuals with criminal, so a few, few of them had criminal records themselves, had done door knocking campaigns, and really gauged the communities that they were serving um, on what they thought needed to happen to, to address some of these issues. And so there was a lot of input into issue one. Um, and so I think that I wish it had passed because I, I do think it would have made a difference and had a really positive impact. That doesn't change the fact of the temperature of Ohio and the way Ohio votes and maybe there, we needed more time to do this education. Um, but I do think that uh, part of the reason why it failed had a lot to do with misinformation and an active campaign to, to see it fail. Um, and so I would challenge those who, are, who were opposed to issue one on you, you, you got what you wanted, it, it did not pass. Um, the issues, the problems that issue one sought to address still remain and what are your solutions to those particular issues. And I'd hope that the way that they use their platforms to oppose issue one, they would do the same using their platforms and their individual roles, their, whether it's their actual um, influence in their daily lives and the work that they do, or their influence over others to come up with and, and, and push forward solutions. And like I said um, in the beginning, um, I think from a treatment aspect, um, our fear as treatment providers um, was that people would not come in for treatment. Um, sometimes they're, they're very fearful of what recovery looks like and how it's going to feel, and um, they wouldn't seek treatment without um, the court saying, hey, you need to go in for treatment. Our, um, 
Uh, Forum will now turn over to our closing speaker. Hi, I'm Sam Lehman, a junior at Shaker Heights High School and member of the Youth Forum Council. And today we've been listening to a Youth Forum on Ohio's drug policy. All City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T. We appreciate their generous support of our student programming. We also thank those individuals and foundations, including the William S. M. Weiss Family Foundation, that provide funding to support, these, to support free student attendance at City Club Forums year-round. We welcome students from Andrew Osborne Academy, Bard High School Early College Cleveland, Cleveland School of Architecture and Design, MC Squared STEM High School, St. Martin de Porres High School, Shaw High School, and Whitney M. Young Leadership Academy. We thank you all for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Addison, Ms. Russ, and Dr. Stream. Thank you, Ms. Supala, for being our moderator. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.